0: Take a network break. We've got news from Aruba, Intel, IBM, and more. Uh, if you haven't checked out Ignition from the Packet Pushers, it's our professional development site. It's subscription-based, so all the content there is unsponsored. We've got uh, training videos, white papers, exclusive blogs, and more. Uh, just to let you know, we'll be launching a practical Python for networking video course in the coming weeks. It's 99 bucks to subscribe for the year. You can check it out at ignition.packetpushers.net.
1: Yeah, and don't forget our Slack channel. If you've ever wanted to communicate with us and to be surrounded by other nerds that sort of follow the Packet Pushers, if that might be your thing, you go over to packetpushers.net slash Slack. There's a form there you can sign up and join in with the people who are asking questions and answering them and helping each other out there. Or if you just want to tune into the conversation and not feel so isolated, especially if you're uh, working from home, it can be useful to have other people around to chat with. They've got chat rooms and stuff and you can just uh, pipe up, join in the conversation. And, uh, of course, our newsletter at uh, packetpushes.net slash newsletter. You can sign up for that, which is free. goes out every week with stories, links, and uh, various other pieces of information. That's right.
0: And stay tuned. After the news, we've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Aruba, an HPE company. We're going to be looking at the AI capabilities in Aruba's new edge services platform. Uh, in particular, we're going to look at how artificial intelligence can improve IT ops. All right, to the news. Speaking of Aruba, they hosted their ATM digital virtual event. Uh, The highlight was the announcement of Aruba ESP or Edge Services Platform. ESP integrates Aruba's wireless and wired portfolio with a cloud-based management layer plus AI and ML capabilities to detect and analyze problems.
1: Yeah, so Aruba, of course, big news of the week. They had their ATM Digital or Atmosphere Digital Conference this week, which was virtual. I tuned in and out of various sessions there to get more of a sense of what's happening. And then, of course, uh, we got a briefing on the Aruba ESP announcement. I think if I had to boil the announcement down, basically what Aruba is announcing here is that the days of the wireless controller on-prem are starting to be complemented with a cloud-based platform. So where before everything was in a wireless controller and as your network got bigger, you had to get a bigger and bigger controller platform, hardware, now you can start to migrate away from controllers to a cloud-based platform for a lot of that stuff. The controller will still be there for a gateway. It's not going away anytime soon, so don't panic if that's what your thing is. Um, and that moves Aruba towards... You ready? AI powered, cloud native and built for the edge with our core values of AI ops, unified infrastructure and zero trust security. Yeah, something like that. So And there's your bingo. Uh, and there's your bingo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Drink. Everybody drink. Uh so really, I think what Aruba is doing here is copying the SD-WAN model. Remember, I've been talking for the last two years or so saying that the idea that we're going to do a software-defined WAN is really just the first step. The second step is when the campus and the WAN become the same thing because the lands or the campuses at each branch, whether it's a small branch or a, you know an office with 2,000 people of it doesn't really matter, those lands. And WANs are actually the same thing. And in terms of bringing them together, and Aruba, in my view, is moving down that path. So once you move the Wi-Fi and the wired, that is the campus Ethernet into the cloud, Aruba's already got some steps down the SD-WAN path. It's fairly simple, fairly... Um, I guess my sense of their SD-WAN strategy is it's still a bit simplified. It basically comes down to an IPsec tunnel thing at the moment. It's nothing really fancy. Uh, but they're going to build that out or say say they're going to build that out over time. Uh, They already have, of course, the um, identity management piece, which I think is the next thing. So when you start moving the identity management on top of this cloud centralized, now you suddenly have a thing where anybody who's connecting to your network, you've got this integrated security and this identity identity management. So... All of those pieces are coming together for Aruba, and I think is making steps down that path. What do you th- Did you get the same sort of ideas?
0: Um, the message, Two things I took away, I watched the keynote, and I also got to participate in a Tech Field Day event, so I got some more uh, in-depth look at something of what's going on, and I'll have links in the show notes when they come out. But clearly Aruba's taking its territory around the network edge. Um, what that means, mm. I think I mentioned this in the <laughs> Tech Field Day event, edge is whatever they have in their portfolio that's not campus or data center. So. <laughs> <laughs> In Aruba's Aruba's case, it's IoT device edges, IoT devices, edges branch offices, edges remote workers. Uh, What they're saying is they can help you uh, identify all the devices coming onto your network and then apply security and access policies all from one uh, easy, simple, unified infrastructure. The AI piece on top of that is that... um, you know, I feel like they have definitely feeling the pressure from Juniper Mist, so they're touting AI Ops. It's essentially a suite of tools. Yeah. They can provide root cause analysis of problems, deliver recommendations, and optimize configurations across your wired, wireless, and SD-WAN gateways.
1: Yeah, this idea of um, using artificial intelligence on top of the Wi-Fi is pretty hot. I mean, obviously, Juniper with Mist were the first there. Um, Arista's got their cognitive Wi-Fi. They acquired somebody to build that. Mojo using, networks, yeah. Um, yeah, they are using AI, and I think Aruba's realised that that is a compelling message, yep. and they are catching up. They are reacting to that. Notably, Cisco hasn't really reacted to that, and I think that's because Cisco is going to take a lot longer to react to a changing market. It usually does. These days we find Cisco much slower, doesn't like to have the market tell it where to go. Cisco likes to make the go down the direction it is until it finally runs out of puff and goes, all right, we better follow the market. Um, I think this is overall, I thought there was a few things here. Uh, one is it's a very good move. It does set you up for the cloud-based thing, which, uh, you know, in the early days I thought was really not going to work for most people. But the vendors seem to have done all the necessary changes to sort of convince me in principle that cloud management makes sense. I still can't shake. Uh, there was definitely parts of the presentation where um, I was watching the the marketing and the product management people get this little gleam in their eye and thinking of all the data that they can get about what their customers are doing. Mm-hmm. Like, if you've got all this data about what the customer's got in their network and what they're using, it's the ultimate sales tool. So customers are going to have to get very much smarter. If you go with these cloud-based platforms, you're going to need to up your purchasing strategy so that you are smarter than the vendor. Because the vendor now knows everything that's in your network, every device, how much you're using it. You can't sit there across the table and go like, oh, yeah, we've got 100 of those, but they're not really critical. And because they've got to to pull out the stats and go like... Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Exactly. You you know, a lot of your negotiation strategies go out the window. And uh, it's also, uh, you know, so there's some interesting things in there about how you engage with this generally. But I think Aruba's really sort of brought this together in the sense that they're catching up quickly or reacting quickly by adding some AI and getting into the AI ops. And one thing that I liked about it was that they actually said, you know, sometimes there's statistics, sometimes it's machine learning, and sometimes it's some AI modelling. It's not... It's not, you know, we've got mystical unicorn powder, you know, ground up unicorn hooves Right. Sp- doing special magic tricks, you know, it's not. It's a lot of it's just basic stuff. A lot of the times, I I do get the sense that they're a fair bit behind some of the others. It was something. I hope that's fair.
0: Uh I I don't. I'm not. I think astute enough in AI to judge whether they're uh, ahead, advan- or, or sort of on par or behind uh, their competitors. Mm. Um, I do know they are gathering a lot of information. They said they collect telemetry from nearly 1 million AP switches and gateways. They've got 55 million client device, uh, as sources, plus 65,000 customers. What they're taking is doing, taking all that telemetry, putting it up into a, in the cloud, munging it through a bunch of AI and ML models to then give you information. So essentially what Mm. they do, they'll create, um, uh, pools that they can model on. So here's the hospital pool. Here's the retail pool. Here's the stadium pool. Here's the, you know, uh, high school pool so that you can see what everybody in this group is doing, how they configure their networks, the kind of performance they're getting, and use that to build a model and then look for uh, deviations from essentially a baseline and then make recommendations to say, based on what other folks are doing, you could make these configuration changes to improve your network by X. Hmm.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly the same story we've heard from other people. Most of the AI came from the Cape network acquisition back in early 2018. So I guess that's why I'm sort of saying it's a little bit behind. Mm. I, I don't think RUBA took it seriously, and maybe the Cape Networks team was not being fed quite as well as the rest of the organisation. But then again, RUBA's come a very long way. They've got the CXOS operating system coming out across the board. And um, I think there was an interesting business twist here when they also announced flexible consumption. So HPE's got this big thing around its green-like consumption-based model. Mm-hmm. And so instead of buying your servers on-premise, or buying your Wi-Fi on-premise, they've got ways for you to actually finance them or consume them as a service so you can rent the whole thing. And is falling in line with that strategy so that apparently there's enough customers out there who actually want to um, hire, purchase their equipment, you know, which is basically like, I don't actually want to buy it, I want to rent it one way or the other. And uh, they do actually have that as well. The other so, thing I, but that's an interesting transition.
0: Yeah, and I also think, and I may get this wrong, but I, based on what I think I understood from Aruba is that if you want this AI ops capability, you essentially have to buy into their cloud managed service. You have to get Aruba Central as yeah. a cloud service. It's not something you're going to have on premises. It has to be done in the cloud.
1: Yeah, we've seen different vendors go different ways. Most of them do it in the cloud first because they need the data and they need to process and build the models. Yes. And then sometime, usually a couple of years down, if they're successful and they're lucky, they've got the ability where they can take the models and push them locally. So you'll always have the cloud because the data has to go up to the cloud to be analysed and to make sure it fits the model and that the models are being kept up to date and they don't need to make new models. But at some point, the models can be pushed down to a local node. And then if the cloud comes disconnected for some reason, the local models can continue to process. That's usually... That's a gross simplification, by the way, of some very complicated technologies. <laughs> uh, and they also, uh, to just to transition that along, they also talked about security as well. They talked about that they're now um, working with a tool called Niara, uh, a Niara acquisition, and they're now using uh, enhanced NetFlow, metadata and fingerprinting to start to put security into the network. So up until now... Um, the ClearPass policy enforcement sort of been a little loose in my mind and it's kind of obviously customers really haven't latched onto it. But I think with Cisco making a big deal about it in their SD access portfolio and a lot of companies are actually really, really terrified of ransomware and I think the a lot of CIOs are saying who knows what's actually needed on the ground but are saying that security is key. Um, you know, we did a, a podcast recently with a Cisco survey and it basically said that as far as CIO is concerned, security is more important than digital transformation or any, mm-hmm. you know, uh, updating equipment or any sort of in, b- training better staff. As far as they're concerned, security substantially overrides all of these. And I think we're seeing that um, being reflected in the product strategies of all the vendors who are obviously reacting to what customers are saying. That's not necessarily what customers want, of course, but what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And so adding in this security thing will be... And so now you're heading down the path where Aruba will have a a sassy what I call a Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3 SD-WAN strategy. Gen 1 is your basic SD-WAN stuff, which Aruba's a little weak in. Gen 2 is sassy, where you've got IDS, IPS, you've got cloud-based scanning of content so you can log all the all the traffic and all that sort of stuff. And phase 3 is when you start to do identity management and deep packet inspection at the edge and that sort of stuff. But I think there's a long-term vision there that I can get behind, and um, Aruba's making good, steady progress against that.
0: Yeah, my takeaway from a presentation I saw from Tech Field Day on their zero-trust approach is that um, you know, Obviously, you can use ClearPass uh, to authenticate a device trying to get onto the network. But then once it's on the network, uh, Aruba's new approach is now to continually assess all these devices. Uh, so they'll do things like DHC fingerprinting to make sure the device is what mm. it says it is. They'll look at traffic. They'll inspect traffic flows. They'll do deep packet inspection to make sure, hey, is this device um, contacting applications or systems or services outside its normal um, behavior? And is that an issue? Do we want to set up a policy around that? So that's sort of continual enforcement uh, and assessment once a device is on the network, just not at that moment of, do I do I get to attach or not? And that, that's their that's mm. approach to zero trust, which I think is interesting.
1: Yeah, well, zero trust is where it's going to be in the future because I think you're going to be in a situation before too long where most people aren't actually connected to the branch or the canvas. And that's going to be a gradual thing over the next five years where people start to work from home or work remotely, whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in those places, you need a zero trust tool. So, unlike ever before, we need zero trust networking. Um, and some companies are further down that path than others. Cisco, for example, with Duo, has got a huge right. uh, Duo security. has got a huge step forward there in that space. Right. Because, and obviously, the AppDynamics portfolio as well. Um, so, and Aruba is well positioned with ClearPass to you know build that yes. build that out. So, it's not impossible for them to do that. Right. But the challenge for Aruba will be to um, do the WAN. They need to come up with an SD-WAN strategy because they were saying, like, oh, we can give you an access point to put inside your house. There's one thing that I know. I don't want my employer giving me an access point inside my house. Right? That is no. I don't need them, you know. That's like an anal probe, Right. you know, exactly. into your family life. Yes, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the, there are there are. That sounds like a good idea until that. Uh, but for about five seconds, and then you go like, wait, "Oh, wait a minute. yeah, no, that's really not." <laughs> yeah, You'd, do you really want your office seeing all of the traffic going in and out of your house? That is not the way it works. And as somebody who's once attempted to do that before to roll out a remote access strategy where we actually put company equipment in everybody's house that is a support nightmare mm-hmm. it is just that yeah too, yeah that yeah because and people leave companies and go to companies and then who owns the assets and you've got to collect them when they go and oh my it's just no that's i can see why they would offer that as a product and talk about it because they've no doubt there's some people out there with a short
0: term or short-sighted approach but i think yeah, I'm sure there's a market for that, for organizations who want to have very tight control over their remote users, that they would love to be able to put an AP with lots of uh, surveillance and management on top of that inside, right in the
1: It's, it's an only, t- if your only tool's a hammer, every problem's a nail exactly. thing,
0: yep. right? If you haven't got a zero trust
1: solution that allows people to work remotely, so if you've not got a, a SSL VPN where people can do everything in a browser or a thin client or something like that, mm-hmm. then... You want to connect them to the corporate WAN via, you know, and connect them to the pri- and basically build an overlay network like an SD WAN type thing. If your only tools a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, and that means putting a company AP with an IPsec VPN coming out the back of it. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. No, that's yeah, that's not the future. That might be where you go, but I don't think that's the long term. Yeah.
0: Uh, one of the that I took away from all of the presentations, the keynotes uh, is Aruba is touting its unified infrastructure. That is wireless, wired, and SD-WAN that you can all manage from a single location, all its switches running a common OS. So that sort of streamlined common operating model that we're seeing come from other vendors as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. And the other thing is they're finally getting into developers. So they started a developer hub sharing what works and everything, but it looked a bit like, I think we should do this. Not so much like we're fully committed to working. <laughs> <laughs> but you know starting start small yep start small
0: baby steps all right uh, links in the show notes if you want more information let's move on researchers have announced new attacks against intel's software guard extension or sgx sgx stores encryption keys for trusted execution functions the attacks are called sgx and crosstalk they're the latest in a string of attacks going back to 2018 that started with specter and meltdown
1: yeah so i think the cracks in intel as an organization are showing here this is the second time even though they have Um, fixed the SGX problem last time and talked about, you know, we're definitely going to fix this. It's been basically broken open with exactly the same attack as last time. Uh, I didn't have enough time to really get deep inside of this, Uh, but you can read the Intel advisory links in the show notes. And then there's also a good review On bleep beeping computer, which talks a little bit about how it works, but the general thrust of it is exactly the same as like it's it's similar attack to what happened back in two thousand and eighteen. So Intel did a you know the corollary is Intel did a bad job securing it. Uh, This is a real problem because if you're um, a cloud company, you should be concerned because if you're offering bare metal servers Mm -hmm. and people can play you know get access to these keys, then that's a weakness. And um, if you're in a private network, it's not so much of a problem because the chances of people getting access to the SGX table is pretty limited. So sort of not something that's a an issue that you need to race out and do something about. You need to be aware of it and maybe evaluate and you probably are already evaluating if your organization is. But I, I do feel that this is um, these problems with these Intel CPUs are really pervasive. And I understand why uh, AWS, for example, pursued its own strategy to build its own NIC because it really can't trust the motherboard to be secure. Mm. It, know- it seems to have known or to have been aware that these sorts of attacks were likely and that also the BMC firmware was vulnerable to attack and a whole, you know, like the rowhammer stuff. And that's why AWS puts a whole bunch of stuff in a NIC and has a whole boot system and security system in, the- in a smart NIC um, to protect their servers from what's actually happening there. And I think that might be a sign that this is actually goes deeper than we know and uh the real story here isn't really coming out for whatever reason that i don't quite understand
0: yeah so it appears the researchers partnered with intel uh as they did their research so that it was all done responsibly responsible disclosure and intel says that the sg attack relies on a previous vulnerability for which a microcode fix is already available and it's going to release firmware to address the crosstalk attack mm. so as you mentioned yeah this is an ongoing issue that Really came out a few years ago, which I think is why there's less of a freak out than when Spectre and Meltdown came out because it was the yeah. first time this had been reviewed. Well, and the scope of it had to be understood. And so this is just sort of, yeah, we know it's still an ongoing issue and we'll get, we'll get fixes <laughs> yeah. and yada, yada.
1: Yeah, it, it's not, and it's also not, you know, it's not a world ending, it's right. not instantly exploitable, right? right? So it's not the world That's ending. the other thing. Yeah. But it's also, and it's also interesting, like, this week we saw Bloomberg, against the backdrop of Bloomberg, uh, releasing a... Now, i always a bit dubious about Bloomberg. They're an untrustworthy source of technical data, technical news. But they're indicating that Apple's likely to introduce ARM CPUs in their Mac range of computers. Um, we don't know. It's only... We'll find out in, in four weeks when the conference, the WWDC conference goes through. But if that's true, you know... Intel's failure to get their CPUs safe and faster would sort of be, you know, the, compare that with Apple saying, well, we can actually design our own CPUs better, albeit ARM um, CPUs, and yes, they're buying licenses and a lot of it, blah, blah, blah. But that, but that's
0: the reality mm-hmm. is who's better at designing CPUs, Apple or Intel at the moment? That's right. So we've, and, we've got links uh, in the show notes to advisories from Intel itself uh, plus the bleeping computer story and also Ars Technica did a great story on it, very detailed if you want to go check it out. Mm. Uh, Moving on, MIT has ended negotiations with the academic journal publisher Elsevier due to disagreements over open access research to journals and journal articles. Uh, Greg, you threw this story in here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have a bee in my bonnet about getting access to research papers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I try to read research papers on computer science. I allocate um, several hours a week to actually um, going down certain rabbit holes on computer science papers if I can. And increasingly, I've had to stop bothering because I just can't get access to them. They're all hidden behind uh, paywalls, yep. and I'd like to surface them and publish them on the Packet Pushers website, but they're all literally behind paywalls. Now, everybody says, well, why don't you just contact the author of the paper and they'll give it to you for free? And I'm going like, yeah, well, why do I – but I can't find it, right? And that's the problem right. once I know where a paper is. yeah. And anyway, so this is – um, as I was researching this, apparently MIT was paying $2.7 million a year to access freely published content from Uh Elsevier, right, which is, and it's just astonishing. That's a lot of money for them to pay in a bulk agreement to access open research that was actually paid for by the government. Like, all of this research is students at university institutions, which is public money across the world at governments. They publish a paper, and then Elsevier sells the paper back to the institution at a massive markup. Anyway, so it turns out that there are a, a small but growing number of, big education organisations, UCLA is another one, and so forth. If you do a bit of a search, I put a, a list in the show notes of interest. interested. But they're actually walking away from the deals that Elsevier used to give them. So uh-huh. Elsevier used to offer them like a, a Comcast or a Netflix bundle where you can have everything we have for a fixed fee. Yeah. And apparently a lot of these people are saying we're just walking away. So um, it'll be interesting to see if that can stick because if it goes down to a paper use – and then the whole open access. If the institutions start move to an open publishing model, and you don't have to go to Elsevier, is that value that they're offering actually worth it? And that's what we're finding out.
0: Yeah, my wife is an academic, so I have a little bit of insight into this. The academic journals are essentially uh, uh, they've got control over the journals, but the the value that they bring is almost nil because it's the it's. Uh, researchers and professors who edit the journals, they don't get paid for it by the journals. They, they do that because they're being sponsored by the university. Um, they get the content for free because academics write and publish and research these reports that then get put behind a paywall. So universities are starting to say, why are we paying you this money when you don't provide anything to us? And the journals will say, well, you know, we curate and we do some editing. They don't do any editing. Maybe they do a little copy. They don't editing. do any editing. Yeah. So the value mm-hmm. that they're providing for the money they're getting is almost nil. And so there's this movement toward open access where universities are saying we can just, you know, Put this online ourselves. We don't mm. need you. So they're essentially looking yeah. to get around this middleman that the journals are.
1: It's really fascinating because I read a, a a research from Sweden where they refused to pay up, and then they two years later they did an analysis, and apparently a lot of the academics, the like senior academics, are quite spiffed about it. Are quite annoyed mm. because their career was built on submitting papers and getting credit right. inside of the right. these organizations, yes. right? Not just Elsevier. There are others. Um, and, and, and they sort of feel like some of them feel like it was being taken away from them and others go like, well, I've already made it. What do I care? <laughs> but the, it was the junior academics who were saying, well, how am I going to get recognized? How am I going to publish a paper and be, get the kudos to be recognized that I'm a senior? And I'm like, blogging? Have you heard of it? It's like, you know, like, have you ever thought about building a profile in your industry? It's like, why, what? It just seems so incredibly lazy to me to say like I published a research paper and we all the work's done, you know. Yeah. yeah. And no wonder you people are exploited. See, it's really dumb.
0: Anyway. Yeah, there is. I mean, you know, where you publish and how much you publish is tied to your tenure, which is crucial for working in the academy. So that's yeah, it's part of the hold that the journals have. And, the, and
1: but the academic the, the institutions say it's got to be published in a public, you know, a
0: reviewed right, a peer reviewed journal,
1: like a peer reviewed journal. Why? You know, that's just abrogating your responsibility. Why not? Why don't you have another faculty, you know, review it and say, yeah, good stuff. Why would you go and pay? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just laziness on the whole industry's part. It really is. There's so many easy answers to this, but yeah.
0: Yeah, well, the, the journals have a huge business model that's now being challenged by um, universities, and so this will be interesting to watch. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, why couldn't you, as an academic, just send it to your You know,
1: you've got a peer in another university somewhere you know, and you say to them, could you please peer review this paper? Well, the issue is you you don't
0: (laughs) want somebody who knows you because they may not. It's got to be blind. The peer review has to be blind so that you don't know who it is because you don't want, you know, your knowledge of this person, whether you have a friendship or a grudge against them, to influence the actual. See,
1: that only makes sense in time when people aren't connected. So if I send it to you um, and you review it, and I can ring up you and say, you did a review on this paper. What do you think? Or I could email you or chat you, you know. R- the world's changed. That was true in the days when, um, uh, of, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, where there was no way that you could contact the reviewer and actually say, are you related to the person involved or something?
0: No, I don't think it's that. It's that, that that you're trying to, when you're reviewing, as a reviewer, you want to be as unbiased as possible. And if you know the person, that could potentially allow bias into your review of the data. So that's the whole point of having blind reviews. And so it's not about calling up your friend and asking them to look at it. It's about the part of the peer review process is that it has to be blind so that biases can be limited as much as possible. But there's still ways yeah. to do that without having you know a, yeah. a, a paywall journal be in the middle of it. And the other side of this, too, is a lot of these
1: disciplines are getting increasingly specialised. So if you're somebody who works on writing white papers inside of, you know, middle boxes in the internet, there may only be a half a dozen people in the world who can blind review your paper.
0: Right. Well, that, again, is one of the yeah. functions of the journal that would say, well, we've appointed this editor who's an expert in the field and they know other reviewers who would be good yeah. to look at this. So we'll have the editor be that contact. But they
1: person. probably know everybody yes. in an area of increasing specialisation. Yes. They've probably met each other at conferences or, yes. you know, whatever. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a bit like, you know,
0: people who do telco networks. They all know each other. Right. And, you right.
1: know, it's the senior people because they,
0: yeah. Yeah, but the journal letter is supposed to act as that cutout to preserve the anonymity yeah, between yeah, the, yeah, the paper yeah, yeah. and the people reviewing it. Whatever. Don't believe me. <laughs> all right. You don't have to believe me. Keep trying, but no. <laughs> this
1: thing called the internet have you heard of it
0: (laughs) all right we'll leave it there let's move on ibm amazon and microsoft have all announced they are halting sales of facial recognition software to police forces in the united states ibm was the first to do so and in fact they're walking away entirely from facial recognition and analysis software amazon and microsoft have followed up amazon is putting a one-year moratorium on its recognition software service Well, Amazon's putting a moratorium on sales to
1: police departments in the U.S. Right, to police, yes. So it's still selling it to everybody else. Right. (laughs) And Microsoft has also said it won't sell it in the U.S. That doesn't mean that it won't sell it anywhere else, by the way.
0: And this is just to police police agencies, local police agencies. It could be selling it to the government, the army, whatever, military and That's buyers. exactly right. Yeah. And there are other companies out there
1: that are selling facial recognition en masse. So, yes. um, but it, IBM is absolutely appears to be walking away from it completely. And you would be reasonably speculating it must be a financial decision in part. So does IBM realise that it can't win against AWS and Azure and the other companies? I suspect so. Um, and maybe it's a back-off. But at this point in time... Uh, getting out of facial recognition is a good social move, so, especially in the US. The rest of the world probably doesn't mind one way or the other, but getting out is a good social move in the US. And Ultimately, IBM is an American company, and so, and the majority of its revenues come from the US, so doing that might be good politics right now.
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, Amazon and Microsoft particularly have said they want to wait for um, some rules from the federal government uh, around ethical practices for the use of facial recognition software. So uh, Amazon in particular said we're giving them a year. (laughs) This is why we're suspending it for a year. Yeah.
1: So I think there's two things here. One is, um, of course, the US government and the political situation in the US, which is pretty you know, well known. We're not going to touch on it here. So obviously reacting to that is a thing, but there is a move inside of the US government itself to put legislation forward on this. And I think the government, that these companies want to be careful they're not caught out being somewhere in a year's time that's suddenly illegal and having to backpedal. Yep. So it makes more sense against and against, the, again, the social issues. There's value there. And I also noticed that a lot of Uh, we've seen a lot of social unrest inside the companies where the people who work for these companies have been throwing up objections. And the thing about Amazon and AWS in particular is they are growth companies and they're absolutely dependent on attracting large numbers of people in highly skilled jobs, those people who can go anywhere to work. And if... Amazon and AWS develop unsavory reputations as mercenaries or doing evil projects, right? Then they will have they will become unattractive places to work. And it's a subtle thing, but it's actually a real thing. I've seen surveys of younger workers that indicate they are unwilling to work for boring and or companies that are evil, right? Mm-hmm. They will literally choose a better job. And if you are, a, you know, a worker who's got choices and if you're a pretty highly skilled programmer, you've got plenty of choices, yep. um, that actually hits the bottom line because they, they don't get the best, they get the second best, and they also have to pay more to get them. Mm-hmm. So these people might be making a, a trade-off around recruitment. So uh, if you've ever decided to do activism inside your workplace, it's probably working if you think
0: that works. That's right. And getting back to government regulation, I, there is well-known examples of bias in AI, and there are significant issues with false positives mm. around facial recognition, so we do need to have some kind of guidelines and practice yeah. in place for ethical use of these technologies.
1: Yes. And they do. Uh, Amazon's uh, call it particularly said, we advocated that government should put str- stronger regulations together govern the es- ethical use of facial recognition technology. In other words, they don't want to take responsibility. Yep. So it is a cop out. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. No cookies for anybody.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Moving on. Uh, the Wireless Trade Group Wi-Fi Alliance has named FCC Chairman Ajit Pai as their wireless champion, an accolade that's being bestowed upon Pai for the FCC's move to open the 6 gigahertz spectrum to Wi-Fi.
1: Coming a social justice warrior today um this is another one in the same sort of thing i'm not normally like this but this one felt a bit wrong um th- the wi-fi alliance is a global standards group that's dedicated to globally shepherding the wi-fi standards to serve the group of its members uh-huh. and you go through and have a look at all of its membership right um and it is 60 percent uh, companies in China. It's got Sony from Japan and a range of companies, and, and in Europe, as well as a group of people. But the Wi-Fi Alliance is based in the U.S. And then you go and have a look at things, and you go like, actually, it's all all of the awards that are handed out, bar a very small number, are for U.S. people. Uh-huh. Uh, are usually white males, right? I'm actually not sure that there's actually a female or a black person in the whole thing. There's a few Asians in their best of. So when you actually look at their awards for this, I'm actually like, hang on, what are they? So this is a US-based standard body. So this is a global standards body based in the US. And um, I'm a bit sort of going like, why are they rewarding the US uh, politician, who he is a, a political appointee, he is not uh, a, a functionary or a bureaucrat, he is a political appointee. Yes. Um as the, now, let's give credit. AgitPi did make a bold move to declare the 6 gigahertz spectrum, and that is a substantial move. But its I don't believe it's actually a historic decision for the whole of the world that the U.S. allocated the 6 gigahertz spectrum, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so I have a bit of a problem here that, uh, you know, that it's a bit self-serving for these people to hand an award to a political appointee because maybe they want some of that or something. I don't know. It just feels wrong somehow.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I don't like Ajit Pai for his policies. He's been a he's been mm. trying to crush net neutrality, and we can that's a different discussion. But yeah, so uh, you know, but whatever. This seems like a meaningless award. I understand your concern, given it's supposed to be a global body. Why are they showering praise on a, a U.S. political appointee? That's uh, not a good look. Mm.
1: It does seem just feels a bit creepy, uh, <laughs> you know. And if they. Uh, the only thing i can think of is that the organ you know the people involved are basically padding their own nests because that's not a very big market yeah. right those people who you know set spectrum policy is pretty restricted <laughs> and uh, they'll all be friends you know for the that's next fair. 10 years paying each other <laughs>
0: welcoming each so other it does into the lucrative bit, consulting gigs afterward yes
1: yes it does yeah. so yeah it feels a bit wrong somehow maybe and if i'm not got the right end of that get in contact with me head on over to packetpushers.net/fu to tell me what i'm not seeing and what I'm not knowing, and I'll be more than happy to get onto a call and then issue a retraction if any part of what I've said is incorrect, and I'll happily do that. But from where I stand, that's what I think.
0: I think you're just jealous because you're not a Wi-Fi champion.
1: Yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> I've never, ever won an award for anything. <laughs> Seriously, no. Packet Pushers has never won an award for being a podcast or for Aww. nothing.
0: No, i been- but we're still here. So worked that out. <laughs> I don't know what that says, but we're still here. <laughs> I don't know what that says, We're still here. <laughs> All right, moving on. Extreme Networks stocked popped 21% recently thanks to a massive share purchase by the board member Edward Kennedy.
1: Bit weird. Uh, how do you drive up the stock by 21% by buying half a million dollars worth of stock? Uh, but it turns out that uh, Extreme Networks has a total market capitalization of $500 million. So this director was actually to buy actually able to buy a substantial amount of shares, nearly 0.1 percent of the total company value. Huh. So uh, a director of the company buying a substantial proportion of the company's total value is something to take note. And uh, usually there's a whole substantial group of people on the, stock, on the stock market who believe that if a CEO or the CFO or somebody's on the board of the directors buys in big, they must know something that I don't, so drive the share price hmm. up. Um, on the flip side that would indicate that the share price wasn't valued very highly. So sure. people before this purchase, people didn't think much about it. And uh, shall we say? Yes. And the fact that somebody does believe in it suddenly made it 20% more valuable. So I'm not 100% sure quite how to, ma- how to take this, but it's unusual. And also what caught me out here was that Extreme Networks has a total market capitalization of just $500 million, which seems to be a substantial shrinkage over the last period of time. That's uh, which is interesting.
0: Yeah, that's right. I remember when they were doing all their acquisitions, their goal was to become a, a billion-dollar in revenue company. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: So yeah, just just a thought there. <laughs>
0: All right, so oh, something to ponder. Uh, SpaceX, they've got a second chance to get a slice of a $20 billion pie of U.S. government subsidies to provide rural broadband. That's thanks to a recent rule change by the FCC that will allow the satellite provider to apply for the subsidies that the SpaceX and other uh, low-Earth orbit satellite providers can now apply for the subsidy.
1: Yeah, so I put this in just to round out the story. Last week we talked about SpaceX being kicked out of the broadband process because it didn't meet the requirements. Um, they've gone, "Wow, wow, wah, wah, wah you got to let us in. And the the... Uh, the uh, global Wi-Fi champion, AgitPi, has actually let them in, it seems. Um, And because SpaceX made a a submission saying that it asks only to have the same opportunity to participate in the option and to be subject to the same auction procedures as all other potential bidders. And they were excluded on the fact that it was technically impossible for them to meet the requirements. (laughs) But apparently now they're way back. So uh, who knows? Who knows where we are? So... I just thought I'd mention that because I do actually have high hopes for the space broadband to offer us a way to get free of the terrestrial telcos. We need better choices here, and it might be that this works.
0: Uh, Rural broadband in the United States is an absolute mess. Uh, The government has spent billions on it for almost nothing to show for it. So, yeah, I'm hoping that there's a solution out there. We don't know if it's SpaceX. We'll see. Uh, I'm open to them being given a shot as long as there are actual strict, stringent technical requirements that they can meet. Yes, we'll see how it goes. I just wanted to round out the story and see what happens. All right, our last piece is an amusing little thing. Uh, after being dinged for a trademark violation by Let's Encrypt, a tech hobbyist has renamed his project Let Us Encrypt. Let Us, as in the leafy vegetable. Let Us Encrypt is an open-source project to make it easier to provision digital certs from Let's Encrypt in Windows ASP.NET servers.
1: Yeah, have we got another one? Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> it's pretty funny uh, here because all I can remember is back when I was a uh, in the in my when, as a young teenager, I was was an altar boy, and I remember that one of the big altar jokes jokes was "Let us pray," and the the, the pre, and the, the 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 penitent says, "Really, Father?" and he goes, "Yes, let us pray." So the guy gets a lettuce and says, "How's it going to pray, right?" It's just <laughs> so. But I'm Tish, I'm here all week. Uh, so, yeah, I pretty good fun. I mean, the idea that somebody like Let's Encrypt, which is fundamentally an open source project, wants to defend its trademarks, sort oh, it of feels a bit creepy. But, okay, good, good on you for coming up with a jokey way out at the other side of it, that's what I... Think.
0: Yeah, the reg has the full story. To me, it seems like it's pretty clear he wasn't trying to... Uh, you know, uh, the person who was running this source project wasn't trying to confuse or mislead leaders or try to copy Let's Encrypt Service, mm. uh, but Trademark Law is Trademark Law, so this guy's having a lot of fun with it, so kudos. All right, that brings us to the end of our news portion. Please stay tuned for our Tech Bytes sponsored podcast with Aruba. We're going to be talking about AI ops in their new ESP. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers. On today's show, sponsored by Aruba, we're discussing the AI capabilities in Aruba's new Edge Services Platform, or ESP. In particular, we'll explore how artificial intelligence can improve IT operations. Our guest is Jose Tejado. He is Chief Technologist of AIOps. Jose, welcome to the podcast. So we're talking about Aruba's approach to AIOps. Can you give us a quick explanation of AIOps in general and what Aruba's role is?
2: Hello, Greg. Hello, Drew. First of all, thanks to you for having me here. Um, Yes, so AIOps Mm -hmm. is a key ingredient of the Arua offering. Some of the pillars of this AIOps is smart telemetry from existing infrastructure, collecting data from very diverse environments, having everything pushed to a cloud-native platform, use domain knowledge of almost 20 years of Arua deployments, create models around all this data and knowledge, and create recommendations, root causing, or actionable insights. Some of them automatically updating mm. for the networks to operate better.
1: So this AI ops idea it sort of sounds a bit. It's a bit fancy at the moment, and every all of the vendors are getting onto this idea of AI ops. And I think sometimes I think of it as a post orchestration. Right, we go out there, we write automation scripts, and it's a bit like yesterday. We used to pull the lever, move it two slots to the right, and then bang it with a hammer. So we write a we built a tool that pulls the lever, moves it two slots to the right, and then bangs the hammer, right? And then when orchestration, you realize, well, actually you need to do a whole series of those moves. And so you write a, you get out an Ansible script or you get some Python or you get some tools together and you write it all out. But I think Ops is taking it to the next level from a business point of view and saying every customer does exactly the same, same thing. They do, they all pull the lever, they all move it two stops to the right and then bang it with the hammer. Why are we asking them to do that? Why aren't we just getting the system to do that automatically? is that a fair assumption around ai ops
2: so yes that's a pretty good analogy um we're trying to learn i mean not every network operator knows what's best for its network its environment its Mm. operating system its devices and we're trying to actually do a combination finding out what's wrong with your network and recommending best practices being based on seeing networks that operate better than yours and of course things that could be automated without having a user having to press those levels like yeah. levers is yeah. much more efficient yes
1: yeah but so i guess what you're trying to say is there's a reaction part so ai ops is a reaction part so i see something in the network i flag it if i know if the uh the software and its uh, intelligence i'll use inverted commas we'll talk more about that in a minute Um, if it sees something in the network, then it reacts and says, oh, I know what this is. So can it actually close the loop there and then resolve? Or does it react and alert?
2: So it actually has both flavors. Sometimes the problem is so complicated that even AI doesn't know the solution. But what it'll do is enrich based on all the smart telemetry so that somebody that's an expert could go and resolve it. But for many of the use cases where machine learning could actually use the data and predict a good output, we'll do it automatically.
0: Okay, so I can get automated actions if I want to, but if I also just want to have alerts and context, I can get that to surface it up to me so that my team can then go take care of the problem.
2: Yes, because some problems cannot be fixed by automation. For example, it's this use cases where given your network infrastructure, say you have an 11AN Um, infrastructure and there's a lot of devices in your network that 11 ac capable and we know that based on capabilities advertised across tenants and we know you're not meeting the slas that your applications need the recommendation may be upgrade your hardware to this version and you cannot do it through automation but we'll give you data to support that decision data presumably you
0: could take back to your boss to get the the budget to upgrade your ap's
2: yes and sometimes the problem is outside the network you're controlling so maybe you have Aruba EPs and switches, but you have some other WAN issue, and we could point out that there is a WAN issue that's preventing your applications from performing better, and we cannot automatically update. Oh, it's not the
1: WAN; it's always DNS.
2: (laughs) <laughs> yes, but we have the insights for that too. We'll find anomalies yeah. in DNS servers and maybe you don't control them, but we'll tell you the anomaly is in this DNS server.
1: Right, so we are actually doing some application level capabilities for a certain types of things. It's not an application inspection engine, I don't imagine, but if you can check the DNS responses and say, oh, hang on, something's going wrong here.
2: Yes, and that cannot be automatically closed looped and fixed. You have to go and call different number <laughs>
1: yeah now i think the other part about your ai ops is that you're moving to a cloud hosted operational platform so that is and we'll talk more about that when we talk about the esp the platform that you're doing so maybe what we should do is probably break down the elements of an effective ai how do customers think about an ai solution how would aruba want customers to think about an ai solution
2: Well, first you have to subscribe to the central ESP flavor. Um, Mm -hmm. The devices obviously are sensors too, because when they're operating with, um, interacting with clients, they're getting tons of data from the, getting tons of fingerprints from the devices based on how they're scanning, how they're probing, how they're what applications are running, the capabilities, the interoperability issues, all that smart telemetry, which includes things such as stats, events capabilities are all shipped to the cloud. Then we actually have very diverse environments because all this data is collected in a central spots. So we could actually build models that are targeted to your environment. It's not the same thing to be in a conference room than to be in a stadium or be in a dorm. So we basically use lots of features of the environment, which include Wi-Fi infrastructure things, infrastructure density, propagation in the environment, the device mix, what applications of the devices are, doing. Then, of course, the machine learning models we pick, we make sure they're robust and explainable when possible. so that when we try to apply them a little bit outside the environments where we've actually been carefully tested, they're actually robust and don't predict uh, don't generate weird outputs.
0: Okay. I think that's important because my understanding of AI and ml is that you need a fairly large data set to get useful insight out of it. And so you're saying, Not only are you gathering telemetry on my individual organization, but you're pooling it and presumably anonymizing in some way so that you can get additional layers of insights plus have a larger data set to work with from the beginning.
2: Yes, we're pooling all the information, but we also want to make sure that the information that you get back and what actions you should be taking is based on networks that are similar to yours because we don't want to recommend you things that work well in a stadium and recommend it to your dorms. Right. Completely different Wi-Fi environments.
0: Okay, so you can give me sort of adjacent uh, recommendations, but still having some relevance
2: to my environment. Yes, they have to be targeted to your environment, yes. Hmm.
1: Do I have to do a lot of work to set this up? So sometimes these types of tools need me to configure them for a few months or years first. I mean, uh, you know, a brief period of time <laughs> of adjustment, you know, a, a deployment, you know, with some professionals. Ser- is there any of
2: that going on? No, the setup should be rather straightforward. Um, some of the models that l- learn locally will need some time to settle and become accurate. I mean, a lot, most of these models, we don't actually deploy them until we're sure that they're accurate. But a lot of these config recommendation things, they're learning from your peers. So we could find out what network, what environment you're operating very quickly. Within a day or two, we could know if you're a classroom, a dorm, an auditorium, a stadium, actually even less than that. So we can start applying a lot of the recommendations from your peers very quickly. But if we're going to do anomaly detectors that detects that something strange happened to your sites today, we need to learn what's normal for your site first. So those could take a, a week or two.
1: Right, yeah, such. but they're self-learned. They're not, I don't have to spend, you know, hundreds of hours professional services tuning the, the no.
2: algorithms or the models to get that out. No, 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 no. The learning has been done on the pooled cloud-native platform, where it's pooled data. Currently, we have data from over a million access points and 50 million clients. So those models already have been built. Um, The things that you could learn from them will work right away.
1: Right, and this is the value of AI: is that you've you're learning them automatically. It's not even well. You're probably doing some modelling, and there is some human um, interaction with the the process here. But generally, what you're saying is your artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms is saying, "This is the data, and if I look at this, I can see that there's a pattern here, and that's an outage. We we can um, intuit or learn or um, deduct that that is an outage condition or something that reacts to. So then you give that learning to everybody who's subscribed to the service.
2: Yes, the inference is quick and you don't have to do any work. The designing of the models that was applicable for the use case that the client would find useful, that model was fine-tuned by some expert in the field with some data science um, help. Um, but, yes, you don't have to do anything.
1: And, and how does that data get to Aruba? Because today most of our wireless network infrastructure is running on wireless controllers, and the APs are all talking to the wireless controller. This would predicate that there's some sort of data going up to the cloud, and there's also some sort of cloud operations that might be either working with or replacing the controller?
2: So the we have two flavors of APs in Aruba, the ones that actually natively send data to to the cloud, and the ones that are mentioned are controller-based and locally administered. But we're going towards this unified architecture where the controllers, which going forward will be gateways, will be sending telemetry to this joint platform. So campus customers could learn from IAPs, which are cloud-native, and they could jointly give each other insights going forward.
0: Are you also wrapping um, Aruba switches into this as a, a telemetry Yes, source?
2: of course. Yes, in Aruba gateways for SD branch, yes.
0: Okay. And and what about ClearPass? Can you also pull that Yes, uh, yes, data yes, in? yes, okay. yes. Okay. So this is the whole portfolio yes. feeding into yes. the cloud. That,
1: that's actually key, really, because not everybody's bringing their whole portfolio into a single thing. So there are, you know, some of your competitors have got business unit Campus, business unit wireless, business unit data center, business unit WAN, business unit security. It's not unified. You have to self-assemble it and make it work. I think what Aruba is putting out here is that we're much more unified in this approach. Is that a fair statement?
2: Yes. The software teams across all those segments go to the same leader. So yes, the data from APs, controllers, SD branch gateway, switches, all that software is under the same leader. So it's not different business units.
0: Could you um, walk us through one or two use cases of how uh, AIOps is actually working out in the real world at a customer
2: site? Okay, so I'll give you some examples. So um, let's see. So one of the things that I find, the customers find more valuable is this RF config optimization engine which basically takes as sub-engines other machine. I mean, a lot of these machine learnings are in a hierarchy. So you have these building blocks that give you some information, pass it to another block, and that gives more insights. So this machine learning model, what it does is, given features about the environment, things like your Wi-Fi infrastructure, the device mix, the device applications run, um, given all the peers that are similar to you, given your SLAs, find out from your peers what are the configurations that led to the best SLAs. And this thing includes things like setting the powers in the 5 gigahertz band or the 2.4 gigahertz band, the bandwidth of the radios, um, roaming settings, transmit speeds allowed from the AP, um, letting people in or out of the network depending on the SNR. And the building blocks here include obviously device analytics. We need to know what device mm-hmm. types, uh, what are the capabilities, what type of standards they support, how they handle roaming. We need to know things about the A- AOS version. What type of features are enabled and the type of parameters it optimizes are, for example, transmit power 2.4, transmit power in 5 gigahertz. What's the bandwidth 20, 40, 80? The probe thresholds that lets users in or out, the uh, transmit rates that the AP is set to let devices in or out. And of course, being aware of the device capabilities. Is it 5 gigahertz capable? Does it enable 11AC? What transmit rates it could handle? If your users are indoors or outdoors, other mover, mover, movers moving? So we have individual machine learnings that know things about the device mobility state. For example, is the station moving or stationary? Is the client device in or out of the building? Um, Are all building blocks to give you a config recommendation that tell you set these 10 different parameters so that users walking outside the building are not let in, users that are roaming have the best experience, and people that are running um, best effort applications get the maximum speed. So this is all done based on... Featurizing your environment, finding peers, finding configurations that work best for your environment, and automatically recommending this
0: so if I was trying to tune my own environment um, going through all these configuration options that you just laid out, if I was doing this by hand manually, that could take a very long time. You're saying you can sort of provide a set of built in recommendations based on performance metrics you've got I've gotten from peer organizations
2: yes, and your organization may have 10 different environments. You could have a stadium, a dorm, a classroom, an auditorium, um, office space, queue space, open, walled, and you don't want to go and label each one of these environments. So it'll take forever if you have hundreds of buildings. But this feature would actually automatically use Wi Fi infra telemetry to detect what type of class is this environment in. And then looking at peers that have the same class and find out what is the best of breed to optimize the experience of the users for that environment. So first yeah. of all, you have to know for each building, what is the environment? And then tune this 10 dimensional space, what is the best for that building? And yes. Yeah, because you can do
1: things best. like fiddle with, uh, you know, a whole bunch of different variables in the wifi wireless space. You can adjust the transmit. Power on this one and back off the transmit power on that one, because you can see that the five gigahertz spectrum on that is overloaded. So if I increase the power more, uh, endpoints would move to that base station and use the bandwidth that's available. There's a hot and like you said, there's ten possible, more than ten even in Wi-Fi to encourage um, better use of the spectrum. That's the sort of thing that you can talk about, and or moving clients from two point four gig to five gig or moving them around in the five gig spectrum. That's not even something that you can do manually really, unless you're spending your whole day um, you know, watching performance. And that's a incredibly tedious thing to do.
2: I mean, yes, yeah, so you could have a script that every day is changing the configurations in a 10-dimensional space and find the optimal, or you could just oh. let us machine learning do it for you based on peers, which, hmm. which when there's a million APs and 15 different environments, there's a lot of combinations that are automatically done for you. You don't mm-hmm. have to do it, change it every day, monitor the performance and do it again.
1: So we've talked a lot about AI ops and this is really part of a bigger product portfolio. What, what is the product strategy that Aruba is folding AI ops into?
2: Okay, so AIOps is part of the Aruba ESP platform, which includes three main pillars, hmm. AIOps, unified infrastructure, and zero-trust security. Today we focus mostly on the AIOps based on the unified infrastructure that's providing telemetry that could be pooled against multiple networks. And the AIOps includes, um, all, as we mentioned earlier, wired, wireless, and WAND um, jointly,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and it jointly includes campus branch and data center um, remote worker architectures.
1: So one of the things about the ESP, because we got briefed on this, is the fact that it's the same operating system across all the devices, and all of the Aruba software is unified here. So we're talking about ClearPass for zero trust security and the segmentation, and bringing it all together in a single thing. I think AIOps is kind of rounding out the portfolio, not so much... Uh, well, I see it both ways. I think AIOps is rounding out the portfolio and extending it in a new direction so that um, it's almost like Aruba's doing the orchestration for you to some sense.
2: Yes, AIOps will be pulling um, telemetry from all these other building blocks and generating models that could help with any one of these facets.
0: Well, if folks are interested in learning more about ESP or seeing it in action, um, check out Aruba Atmosphere Digital. That's ATM Digital. That's You can find out how to sign up at arubaatmdigital.com. That's arubaatmdigital.com. Thank you, Jose, and thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. And you can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.